From Foreign Policy, I'm Sarah Wildman, and this is First Person. This week, the Uyghurs. There are about 11 million Uyghurs living in Xinjiang, a semi-autonomous region in northwestern China, about the size of Alaska. The Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim ethnic minority, but over the past few years, there's been a massive effort by China to exert tighter control over the region. Mosques have been bulldozed. There's been a crackdown on the use and teaching of Uyghur language. Headscarves and beards are no longer permitted. Fasting is prohibited, as are certain Muslim names for newborns, and parents are forbidden from providing their own children with Islam. China has explained the crackdown as a response to the separatist movement in Xinjiang, but the Uyghurs themselves describe it as a cultural genocide. As my colleague Amy McKinnon reported last fall, for those living in Xinjiang, the Chinese government has crept into all aspects of Uyghur life. Security cameras, she explained, use facial recognition technology, and people are forced to download a monitoring spyware onto their phones. Wi-Fi sniffers and a mandatory mobile app regularly scan Uyghur devices for content deemed politically incorrect. There are strict penalties for those who do not comply. According to UN data from last August, as many as one million Uyghurs are being held in massive internment camps in western China. In one area empty two years ago, a facility covering 5.6 million square feet. We tried to see it firsthand, but were followed by Chinese security agents. At one point, Back in November, Amy was a guest host on First Person. She spoke then to Uyghur journalist Kulchera Hoja from Radio Free Asia. Hoja described the suffering her own mother went through in these camps. She's 72 years old woman, sick. They were taking her to the jail one, chain her and black hooded, ill-treated and tortured in the camp. They call re-education camp, but it's a jail. Since then, more troubling details have emerged from China. The New York Times recently reported that the Chinese government is using DNA samples to monitor the Uyghur population. Nearly 36 million people in Xinjiang took part in the program called Physicals for All from 2016 to 2017. Though this massive campaign to control the Uyghurs is raising alarms among human rights groups, much of their story still remains under the radar. That's why we're revisiting the issue on first person, this time with Humar Isaac. Like Hoja, Humar is a Uyghur journalist living in exile. She's cut off from her parents and friends. Tell me a little bit about growing up. Where were you born? What was your childhood like? I was born in Komol. It's called Hami in Chinese, in Xinjiang, this Uyghur region in China. And I grew up a bit differently because I didn't grow up in a pure Uyghur community. My father and mother, they all work for the government. So we lived in a city and among different ethnic groups, uh, including Han Chinese and Kazakh and Uyghur also. So I grew up speaking Uyghur but a lot Chinese. What language did you speak in the house? Uh, in the house, we are asked to speak Uyghur language, but our classmates and our teachers, they're all Han and they speak Mandarin. So it's easier for us to speak Mandarin, actually. But we are asked to speak Uyghur in the household, yes. Are your parents religious Muslims? Yeah, at least my father, he's a Muslim, yes. But my mother, she's a 
Communist Party member. So she's not allowed to. So that's the situation. Yeah. And what year were you born? Uh, eighty-eight. And you said it was a little bit of an unusual childhood. Does that mean that most Uyghurs grew up in a much more mono-ethnic environment? Yeah, at least my peers. Like I'm a older millennial, and、uh, I was the only Uyghur in my classroom. But the younger generation, it's different. They go to Han schools a lot, so they might be like maybe they have. Ten or at least seven, eight classmates. We were classmates in this classroom, and they study everything in Han Chinese in Mandarin. But at my time, I was the only one, so it's a bit special for me. Yeah. How was life before two thousand nine? Let's say. Two thousand nine. Yes, it's.、Uh, if I think about that now. To say it's normal, like I'm just one of the regular Chinese citizen. I was not. I was treated differently before that. But yeah, 2009 it changed a lot. But wait,、uh, when you say you、yeah. were treated differently, what does that mean? Because you're still a minority, and、um, we still get checked. One more time at these train stations, and even before two thousand nine, Uyghurs cannot rent a hotel room in Shanghai, in Beijing, these big cities. I remember my friend,、uh, she went to college in maybe two thousand three, four, like that, and her father go to Beijing with her, and we had this story. About her father cannot find a hotel room in Beijing because they won't rent a room to a Uyghur person.、Yeah. But then you went to school and then you went out to college.、Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us where you went to college. I went to Peking University in two thousand seven. And you graduated in twenty eleven. Yes. You said you majored in journalism. Yeah. Did you feel assimilated into Greater Han culture at that point? Yeah, it was weird for me, cause especially for me, cause I I don't look Uyghur, I look Han. If you threw me in Beijing, and if they don't have that facial recognition thing now, they won't find out I'm a Uyghur. They'll just look at me like I'm a regular person. So that made a bit different because、um, I had this internship. In our local party newspaper, and、uh, I went to this event to talk to this local official. This local official talked to me like I'm a hand person, and he said things like they won't tell Uyghur person.、Uh, he said that the community is safe. They have a high percentage of Han citizens in this community, so it's more. Safe, and nobody talked to me like that before. I'm confused though. What what did he、yeah. mean by safe? I think these Han officials find that if you have lower percentage of Uyghur population, the community is somehow safer. It was confusing to me also. You mentioned that your mother is a party member, and、yeah. so was she also very integrated into Han culture. Uh, she speaks Mandarin, 
you can tell it's not her first language, but she speaks Mandarin, and my father also. They studied Mandarin in college. Yeah. When did things start to shift for you? Was it two thousand nine? Was it two thousand fourteen? And what was that turning point? Two thousand nine is definitely a point. It gets just harder for us, but before that, it's not easy anyway. Oh, I remember that in two thousand eight, because it's Olympics, and、um, I finished my、uh, summer vacation, and I'll have to go back to Beijing. And during, I think it's like right after the Olympics finished, so I was on this train, and、um, I think it's the police on the train checked my. Luggage checked my everything, including underwears, everything, because I'm a Uyghur, because I I was going to Beijing, and they didn't check anyone else. They checked only two Uyghurs in this area. Growing up, what did it feel like to be an ethnic minority in China?、Mm, at least as Uyghur, it's you notice that it's not like you feel nothing. You feel. A lot of stuff,、mm, but maybe it was not that bad for me personally, because I speak Mandarin well and I don't look Uyghur a lot.、Uh, there's one time I hang out with my friends and they are all Uyghur, and we are in this metro station, and we're just there waiting for the train, and a policeman came and asked for everybody's ID card except mine. Because I look like a hand, so sometimes it's a tiny bit easier for me, but it's still a hard thing, yeah, to live with. And you are actually married to a Han Chinese man, is that correct? Yeah. Is that unusual? It might be unusual to my age. I think. Still, the younger generation, because they grow up with Han people, more younger Uyghur people, they grow up with Han people. They go to school with them, and their childhood friends were Han people. So, so I think that in the younger generation, there will be more interracial or interethnic marriage. But to my age, it's a bit unusual. Yes. And you keep saying you don't look Uyghur. What does it mean、yeah. to look Uyghur? It's hard to explain that because、uh, I'm in New York and everybody don't look like everybody. But <laughs> I disappear in New York also. But it's totally different case in in Beijing. If you are a minority, you don't look like typical Han. You just stand out. People look at you. So you don't currently live in China, do you? No, I don't. Where do you live? Sweden. And how long have you been there? We arrived Sweden in 2017 August. And did you go for work, or did you go because like yeah, become... because my my husband studied there, so I go there with yeah. When you married your husband, was it a problem for either family? It was a huge thing in my family because he's a Han person from Hebei. A Han province near Beijing. So, to his family, she's a minority. It doesn't matter, because it's good to just get married. So it's not a big deal for them. But 
if he's a Han person from Xinjiang, it might be different. Because I had boyfriends, Han Xinjiang person, and their family was not happy about that. Because as a Han Xinjiang person, they have different image for Uyghurs. They don't necessarily hate them or don't like them. They might be friends with them, but a family, it's different. So it was difficult for me to keep that relationship with my Han Xinjiang boyfriend. But my husband, it was easy. So you, yeah. you're living in Sweden, and you, how do you stay in touch with your family? We used to use WeChat, this Chinese app. And you said that in November 2018, your mother yes. stopped responding. Yeah, because it's already not safe for them to contact overseas me. But my mom will still uh, video chat with me every week. We'll talk about food and stuff. Had you been hearing that things had taken a turn for the worse at home? I think we are totally surprised, everybody. We didn't know that's going to happen to our family. But I, I know things are terrible in Xinjiang. Yes, I, I know that. When did you first hear that things were bad in Xinjiang? It was before I before we left China. It's late 2016 or New Year of 2017, because my mom was a government official, party member, and she worked for this project that called uh, Being Relatives and stuff. It was started early, and um, one of her relatives, uh, I think he's a farmer in this small village, and uh, he got into this so-called re-education camps. So I heard about these camps in 2017, early 2017. Were you concerned for your family already then? Yes, I was. Mm, my mom told me that she was asked to give some lecture in these camps, uh, part of this re-education thing maybe. She worked for this tiny village, and uh, she was not happy about the local people being too conservative about Islam because people were not covering them up before, but lately they're covering women and they're covering their face, and my mom didn't like that. So maybe at some point she thought it was helpful. She was asked to give lectures at the camps yeah. themselves? Yes, as a teacher or stuff like that. Yes. And what what did you know of what the camps were at that point? At that time, I, I didn't ask too much about that. But I know it's not a good thing, but I have no information. The only victim of the camps I knew was that guy who asked his wife to cover her face and I don't like the idea of asking your wife cover her face so maybe I thought it's not that bad uh, I feel horrible but yeah so over time you hear that things in Xinjiang are changing mm -hmm. 
And yes, you first heard about it from this one story, but what, did you start to hear stories about other yes. people? Uh, from time to time, because when we were in China, it's not easy to get this information, and it was not reported by foreign media, and the local media won't say anything. So I think we started to hear about a lot of this thing after we left China in late 2017, yes. So you communicate with your family via WeChat after you leave for Sweden, uh, and in November 2018, your messages from your mother stop. When did you get concerned? I thought immediately that she might be get in those camps or she might be seriously ill and uh, in the hospital and can't reply. And I prefer the hospital story. And why did you think she'd been taken to a camp? Because she was super worried because after we left, uh, the story started to change and people with connections to overseas, they got caught in the camps. And there's a rumor that a lot of cities, they're locking up 10% of their Uyghur population. And uh, they're locking off totally random reasons. So you were hearing rumors that more and more people were being rounded up. Yeah, the reasons were super random. One of that I heard my friend's friend, so it's a rumor, but still, uh, the friend's mother got into these camps because the father had a DOI history, but the DOI happened several years ago, and the father is already passed away. We can see how ridiculous is this system working. So, what what history did he have? I didn't understand. He got caught driving drunk. Okay, so it's the same yeah. as we have. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And what was happening in those camps at this point? We have totally no idea. And have you heard from your mother since November? No, nothing. Because people were talking about these camps working like some prison, and you got to call your family every week. People said the detainees in the camps can call their family every week, and uh, maybe the family can visit them every month. But we have nothing. We have no information directly from my parents. Actually, my father and mother, they are all in the camps. And Wait, so uh, when did your father disappear? I don't know the exact date, but we got the information on 18th November. And how did you get that information? My cousin called me and said, your father's in there, and uh, that's the only thing I know. Take care of yourself. That's all. You mentioned that now there's Uyghurs with relationships outside of the region or outside of the country have been targeted. Why do you think that? Uh, I think when they have to lock up 10% of the population, they have to make up some reasons. And uh, with overseas relations is a convenient reason. Uh, My mom was super worried about me living in Sweden. And she got a lot of pressure from the local police. The local police asked her to sign a document in my name 
to say that I won't do anything illegal or harming the Chinese government when I live in Sweden. You, her daughter, would not speak out against China once abroad. Yeah. Yeah. T- tell yeah. us what your mother was doing. You said she was a party committee member, but but yeah. she did more than that. What did she do? She retired in 2017. And before her retirement, uh, she worked in this ethnic and religious committee. And her job was to arrange exams for Mandarin degrees because you're going to need pass an exam to get a document saying that you have some some level in Mandarin. So it was a main part of my mom's job. And you said that she actually helped build a bridge, a literal bridge in the village. And yeah. people were so thankful that the bridge was named after her. Yeah. And, and what did your father do? My father worked in local party uh, newspaper. And when you found out that she was asked to sign this document in your name, did she tell you that? Yeah, she told me that. She actually sent me the photo of the document. And did you feel a pressure to either stay abroad or to come back? I, I know I can't go back. I know I can't do that because it's not going to help my family. It's just going to put myself in the same danger. I, I knew that. How did you know that? Because, yeah, there's already the story that students studied abroad and uh, go back to Xinjiang and get caught immediately into those camps. Had your parents sensed, or even you before you left, a sense that surveillance had changed over the last couple of years? Mm. It's... The 2009 was a huge turning point on about surveillance. So it's not changed too much after that. It it was harder and harder, but the only turning point is 2009. We have to scan our bags through these X-ray machines every single time we go into any huge building, like shopping mall and stuff. It was kind of normal to us. We are used to that. So it's not uh, too big a change about that. You wrote about your situation on Twitter. What did you say? Yeah, I said my parents get disappeared in these concentration camps. And I think people should do something to change that. We can't sit and watch this stuff to happen. And what was the response? I was surprised, actually, because I know the English world, a lot of people care about that. But I was surprised by the reaction on Chinese social media, actually. They don't have access to Twitter normally, but they will use VPN and stuff, or people will make screenshots of my tweets and spread that on Chinese social media. And I saw a lot of people saying nice words about me, especially one of them said, Humar interviewed me. 
because I worked in China for six years, so I got to interview some people, job interviews, and I don't know who is this person, but she said Humar interviewed me, and she had a normal life, and now this is happening to her. And when she says normal life, she means that you were living like a Han Chinese person. Is that what she means? Basically, like that, yes. And so she was surprised that someone who had grown、yeah. up, spoke fluent Mandarin, went to Peking yeah. University, yeah, that something like this could happen. Yes, they were shocked, and I saw people saying that it was super sad for them because when they saw that, it's the eve of Chinese New Year, and、uh, I think I ruined some people's New Year. I'm sorry. Why、yeah. did you decide to make your story public? Mm, because I I had to. I can't wait and see what's gonna happen, and the most important reason is my parents is in there already, because before this, they were hostages. I think to me, they had their not very normal, but at least at home life. My father had his fish, and my mother were learning English and. They were planning, maybe after some years, they can visit me in Sweden, and we were planning on that. We, I was pretending that these things can be normal again, when before they disappear. But after that, I can't pretend anymore. <laughs> so that's why. Do you have any idea the conditions that they're under? I have no solid. Evidence on about them being alive, I don't know. But I heard the rumors, because <laughs> Uyghur people gossip a lot, even under these circumstances. And I heard about some friends. Friends. Friend worked as a doctor in these camps, and she actually saw my mother. My mother introduced herself to this doctor, and. Said she can't sleep, and the doctor gave her some medicine, and that's the whole story I heard. But I don't know if it's real or, or what. But this is the only thing I know about them. Has there been pressure for you to return to China? No, no, no one contacted me. No one asked me to go back to China. No one from Chinese government or our local police station. No one. What do you think the future is for Uyghurs in China? I have absolutely no idea. And for you now, have you applied for asylum in Sweden yourself? I didn't now. Because if you apply for asylum, you have to stay in Sweden for at least half a year or twelve months. You have to wait for a new travel document. You can travel, but if I can't travel, I can't go to United States. Are you able to get any messages to your mother? Um, not directly. Because when I heard this. Rumor about my mother, I just told that person that you can spread this new information. Not to worry. But 
I, I, I don't know if that, if this message will get, get through all this and get to them. I don't know. Because they deleted me in WeChat because you're not supposed to have China on your WeChat or on your other contact. You, you're not allowed to contact anyone overseas. It's extremely dangerous for people in Xinjiang. They'll get into camps only because of that. So I, I can't contact them. I can't send them into camps. Humar, what does the future hold for you? For me personally? One minute. So, uh, during my days in New York, the past several weeks, I talked to a lot of friends and one of them asked me to consider carefully about speaking out because once I started to speak out against Chinese government I'll put myself on this pathway to be a activist and I lost my opportunity to get a normal life again but but I don't have a normal life anyway it's not gonna be normal for me anyway. Are you unsafe living abroad? Uh, no, I don't think I'm, I'm unsafe, especially in Sweden. I know there's rumor about Chinese spies acting overseas, but I don't feel unsafe, especially in Sweden. Humar, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to tell us your story today. Yeah, thank you. That was Humar Isaac, a Uyghur journalist living in exile in Sweden. First Person is produced by Dan Efron and edited by Rob Sachs. We had additional production help this week from Ben Soloway. I'm Sarah Wildman, and I'm your host. <laughs>